All right. I got to be careful. I usually like to move around when I talk, and I'm really, really terrified to like step onto one of these stairs and fall down. So um, if any of you wants to tell me to look out, if it looks like I'm about to step over there, please, please do so. Um, uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians today. So if you got a Bible, um, turn to chapter three. Uh, I'll meet you there in just a moment. Um, but before we get in the text, I, I just, I want to say thank you to you guys. Um, you know, as, as Nate alluded to about a year ago, you guys sent uh, Pastor Jason and his wife Christy down to Charlottesville, and they have been such a balm to our church, uh, uniting our church, holding our church, be, uh, holding our church together. Not them being the ones that are holding our church together, right? We know that Christ is the one who holds the church, but Christ has used that family in more ways than one to bless our church. Um, it reminds me actually of something that Paul does say in Philippians regarding uh, an, a co-laborer named Epaphroditus. Uh, Epaphroditus was a part of the Philippian church, and as Paul was struggling and suffering as a prisoner for the gospel, the Philippian church actually sent Epaphroditus to Paul to be an encouragement to him while he was in prison. And while our church hasn't been in prison, our church has been going through a, a kind of difficulty, and you guys have been gracious enough to send us one of your best uh, to care for us and minister grace to us in the midst of that. And so thank you. Um, all right, hopefully you're in Philippians. I want you to think about how you would answer this question. What does God think about you? How would you respond to that? And after you answered what God thinks of you, how would you defend it? What would you ground your belief in what God thinks about you? How would you prove it? What and maybe, maybe you, you know, you've spent enough time around Christians and enough time in the scriptures to say, I know exactly what God thinks of me. He loves me. Okay. What makes you so lovable in the eyes of God? The way we answer these questions shows where our confidence is. It shows whether or not we actually think we are righteous and that perspective could be either a righteousness before God himself or a righteousness before others. We all want righteousness. We might not say it that way, but we want righteousness. We want to be on the moral high ground. We have a whole culture that stands in opposition to Christ because it believes it has the righteous moral high ground. We want respect. We want dignity. We want righteousness, not just before the eyes of God, where we might justify ourselves to the Lord, but we also want righteousness before others, right? Who doesn't want to be seen as noble or respectable? Your pursuit of righteousness shows where your confidence is, and the direction of your confidence will drive the direction of your life. The letter to Philippians, it's, it's a thank you letter, kind of. Um, Paul does really two big things in the letter. The first is he thanks the Philippian church for not just their support in the gospel, but also the sending of this guy, Epaphroditus. But when Epaphroditus comes, he reports kind of the status of things in Philippi. And he, he talks about how the church is experiencing a little bit of division. There's, there's some people in the church that are fighting and arguing um, and there's some false teaching that has crept up into the life of the church at Philippi um, where these, these, these Jewish folks who came to faith in Christ are starting to tell the Philippian church that any non-Jewish person in the church must be circumcised 
if they want to be a part of the people of God. And so we find ourselves in the middle of the letter, and I could sit here and give you context for what's going on, but we'll kind of, hopefully you'll get a bigger picture of why Paul is writing the Philippians, what's going on in the church as we kind of spend time in this passage today. And I know you guys are coming out of the book of, or not the book of Exodus, but coming out of the Ten Commandments. And I had talked to Nate about that, and he did um, what I really hoped he didn't do. And uh, I kind of asked him, like, hey, man, like, what do, you, what do you want me to preach about? And, you know, hopefully, like, you guys are, like, maybe working your way through a book, and I just kind of find my way into a week where he's like, oh, this week we're in this text. And he said, no, preach on what you want. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, pressure's on me. Um, so after kind of spending some time talking to him, um, I really wanted to get down into Philippians 3. And he actually told me this last weekend that the staff team is, is actually spending time kind of going through the book of Philippians. So um, he didn't tell me to preach this. I chose it. And uh, Lord willing, I hope it encourages you. So let's get into Philippians 3 together, starting in verse 1. Uh, Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, thank you for the scriptures. We know that in the scriptures we can see the sun. And so may we fix our eyes on Christ this morning that we would see the king in all of his beauty and worship. May we see ourselves rightly, seeing where we have put our confidence in our own abilities, in our own status, and see that ultimately all of our confidence should be found in Christ alone. God, make us what we could never be on our own. Help us to see things we would never be able to see on our own, that by the power of your spirit, we would worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Paul begins this section of Philippians with a call for the church to rejoice, and then he kind of looks like he gets away from that and goes into a digression, and and he's, he's actually not. We'll get back to Paul's rejoicing later. Right now, what I want us to focus on is what Paul is talking about in verse two. See, I've already talked about how there are these religious teachers that kind of crept into the church at Philippi, right? So in the ancient world, you could kind of split the the groups of people in the New Testament into two kinds of folks. You have Jewish folks, Hebrews, and non-Jewish folks, Gentiles. You've probably heard these words if you've been around the church for any time. And as the gospel is going out, right, it started in Jerusalem, 
right? Jesus had the 12. The 12 were Jewish. He tells them to remain in Jerusalem until they get the spirit. Acts 2, they get the spirit. Peter preaches to a multitude. 3,000 people come to faith. And the whole book of Acts details uh, exactly what Jesus says in Acts 1-8, that the apostles would be his witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And you see the progression of the good news of the gospel going out. And then at the end of Acts, it reaches the ends of the earth, kind of. It reaches the center of the known world, Rome. And the implication is then from Rome, it would spread everywhere. And we know that it has. As we sit here, nowhere near where Christ and his disciples lived, on the other side of the world, talking about Jesus and reading the scriptures today. Why is that important? Because as the gospel was impacting communities that weren't Jewish, the, the church was, was left with this, this kind of odd and weird scenario where they, they, because of what Jesus did, they had to think through how they lived in light of what the Old Testament scriptures taught and revealed of God and his ways. What is our relation to the law now that Christ has come and brought its law to its fulfillment? You guys have kind of wrestled with this idea as you've gone through the Ten Commandments over the past few weeks. And Paul in verse 2 gets very confrontational, which shows us something. Paul is writing, and the, the tone of the letter shifts. Paul gets kind of in the face of, of, of the Philippians. He gets a little sarcastic. And he gives them this warning to look out for dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about these, these people who are likely very similar to the Jewish sect of the Pharisees. Maybe some of them are Pharisees, came to faith in Christ, and they're trying to reconcile with how they, how they live in light of what Jesus has done, how they live as Jews who seek to submit to and follow the law. And so for many of these folks, they would kind of say that any Gentiles, any non-Jews who come to faith in Christ must be circumcised. They must be circumcised in submission to the law of God. Paul believed that these aspects of the law were no longer necessary because of what Jesus has done, right? So circumcision marks the people of God as a people who belong to them. It was kind of a sign of the covenant commitment that God had to Israel, right? But we know if you actually look through the Old Testament, Abraham doesn't get his righteousness from circumcision. He gets his righteousness from the faith and belief that he, he took God at his word, right? God told him, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. And Abraham said, yes, yes, you will. I believe. And so in Genesis, it says that that faith, that confidence in God's promises was credited to Abraham as righteous, meaning that God himself, through the eyes of God, Abraham was good. He was good. Paul believed that any attempt to force non-Jewish Christians into circumcision was actually contradictory to the very good news about Jesus. You see, the issue of a Christian's relationship to the law is a massive deal in the New Testament. You see it over and over and over again. In fact, it's a massive reason why Paul wrote the entire letter of Galatians, where Paul seems to be the most angry in the scriptures when it comes to his penmanship. He says things like, oh, foolish Galatians which in modern talk means you idiots. Who's bewitched you? Why are you deceived? You who began in faith, why are you now going back to the law? Listen to what he says in Galatians 5, 2 through 6. He says, and I won't read the whole thing. I'm just going to read the first part. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. No advantage. I testify again, every man who accepts circumcision he is obligated to keep the whole law. He says, you, you know what? If you want to accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. 
And as you guys went through the Ten Commandments, you realize that the law itself, if you receive the law rightly, it creates an unbearable weight that we cannot hold on our own. Why is that important? Well, the importance is that in order for us to be righteous before God, we have to be perfect. And we know that we cannot not attain that perfection of our own. We need the perfect one. We need the Christ to bear the load of the law for us so that we can both receive in faith a righteousness that doesn't come from us but comes through Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. Paul's own tone warning the Philippians and in the book of Galatians shows that Paul sees any attempt to add to the gospel as an act of blasphemy. This is important for us. We need to take seriously any attempt that we might have to add to the goodness of the gospel of grace. That as God has revealed himself to us, we take him at his word and we don't add to it. We receive it in faith, knowing that what Jesus has done, is, 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 it's done, it's finished, he said at the cross. And so any attempt to add to that is an act of blasphemy against Christ. If you're trying to force circumcision, it shows that you actually have a lack of understanding of what Jesus does. And if you try to add to your, the, any, any sort of pedigree before God or others to your own Christian life, you're doing the very same thing. So Paul makes it a very clear point that any confidence that we have in the flesh does not produce the righteousness of God. If we take away the confidence that we could have in Christ and we place it in ourselves, maybe our status or our achievement, it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. To illustrate this point, Paul kind of takes his Jewish resume and he spreads it out before the church. So he gives the warning, verse two. Then he, then he gives his point. He said, We have faith in Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. Then he says this, though I myself have reason to be confident in the flesh, which is is Paul's way of saying, you want to play the confidence game? Let's play the confidence game. You think you're righteous in and of yourself? Let me show you how righteous I am apart from Christ. It's silly, but Paul's doing it to illustrate a point. About four years ago, um, I was confronted with the fact that I've really underestimated my own intelligence or overestimated my own intelligence. Sorry. There we go. Gosh, here we go again. So I thought, I thought, I thought I would add to my brilliance by enrolling in seminary. And some of you are laughing because you you probably know where I'm going. Never mind the fact that I was in my lower twenties at the time. And never mind the fact that the only sort of pedigree that I had was a, a good enough degree that I got because I didn't finish high school. So me and my GED rolled in the seminary thinking I was going to turn heads with my intelligence because I had a chip on my shoulder wanting to prove that I had abandoned the childlike sandbox and could hang out with the big boys. After a couple days, so my my seminary experience was intensive-based. So we did all of our assignments online, and then twice a semester we would go out to Richmond for in-class intensives, and I'd be around other students, get to kind of swim around in the waters, as it were, um, and, and hang out with some of the professors. And after a couple days, I realized I actually had no idea what I was talking about. It was like I entered into a conversation that had been having, happening for ages, and I had no idea the conversation was happening in the first place. The confidence that I had in my own abilities worked to actually expose my ignorance. I just showed in my misplaced confidence how foolish I actually was. You see, the inflated perception of our own resume usually deflates the moment we set it up against the resume of an expert, doesn't it? 
The cocky athlete who can dominate in a game with her neighbors looks like a child playing against a professional. I always love the like when like the G League NBA athlete who like doesn't ever start a game like goes and plays in a neighborhood, and you know you're watching him on TV against all these professionals. You're like, this guy's garbage, and then he takes everyone in the neighborhood to school. He can't even start in the NBA, so let alone like a LeBron James or a Kobe Bryant or some sort of legend, right? Or, or we think just because we had a 4.0 GPA in school growing up, we get into college, we maintain that 4.0 GPA, and then we get actually into the real working world. Many of you guys have experienced this where you like sit down and you're like, oh, my GPA actually doesn't matter as much as I thought it would because these people know what they're talking about, and I still don't. Or I can think of the uh, certain self-diagnosis of the internet Googler that is put to humility when it actually sits down and receives the care of a licensed physician. All of these things go to show that our status can't save us. It can't save us. The righteousness you want isn't found in your status. Paul gives us four pictures of his status. He's circumcised on the eighth day, which basically means Right, we we get we get into like you know debates on what the Bible says. This happened back then. Um, Paul's family rightly practiced circumcision. Right, they weren't deluded by the culture around them. Right, they weren't like the pagans. This would have set Paul apart from those people over there. But not only that, he was of the people of Israel. So Paul was ethnically Jewish. Now, you and I know that many of us in this life can be tempted to get our validation from our, from our ethnic status or the status that our ethnicity gives us in a culture. I don't want to speak too much to that. What I want to talk about, though, is how this distinguishes Paul from non-Jewish converts, right? So if you've read your Old Testament, you know that the law actually had provision for people who weren't Jewish to become a part of the community of Israel. Two examples that you see that are in the lives of two women. Rahab, who was a Canaanite in, in, in Jericho, Right, who smuggled the Israelite spies in and lied on their behalf so that they could get back to the armies of Israel because she had faith that God would triumph over the Canaanites. She became a part of the family of Israel. Or another one, Ruth, who is a Moabite, an enemy of Israel, who becomes a part of the community of Israel. However, these Jewish converts would have been often seen as like second-class citizens in society. Right, So Paul isn't one of those. He is of the people of Israel. He is a Jew, but he's not just a Jew. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, which is a prestigious tribe. Right, Benjamin was one of Jacob's favorite sons, and Benjamin was the tribe of the first king of Israel, Saul, who Saul, formerly, now we call him Paul, was named after. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he kind of ends his exclamation. Paul is packing his righteous Jewish resume to the brim regarding his status. And his last point might not mean much to us, but we do this kind of thing all the time, don't we? We might not say it this way, but you might think of yourselves as a professional's professional, right? You're intimately connected with your performance on the job. And you get your confidence from how others perceive your status as an employee in your vocation or the the title that's on your business card. You give yourself maybe a little pat on the back for that. You've got a little too much confidence as a professional. Or maybe you see yourselves as a Christian's Christian, right? Maybe you grew up in the church and you've kind of been around, you've swam in the waters of the church for a while. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, the longer you spend time in the church, the more we can be tempted to inflate ourselves up with self-righteousness as we look out at those people over there who have no moral compass at all and don't understand how the world works. Right? We see the moral compass of others as absolutely broken and couldn't conceive how someone could be like that. 
even though we were just like that at one point. Right? This sentiment could also be applied as you view people inside the church, as you kind of inflate your own self-righteousness over other Christian brothers and sisters who are struggling. Or maybe you see yourselves as an American's American. And you might think you know where I'm going with this, but just bear with me for a second, right? This could go one of two ways. An American that's American could be on the right or the left. You see, because on the right, your pride for your country can lead to an unhealthy idolatry leaning toward nationalism as you live for God and country. Or you could take pride in your status as anti-MAGA, seeing the right as a total problem, and they're actually the problem fighting to prevent the country from being polluted by those hyper-conservative religious folks who are really the problem and don't understand the grace and mercy of Jesus. Either way, what it is, is you're taking pride in being an American's American. The idol of status, listen to this, the idol of status is cancerous to our progress in Christ and it puts us in a direction where we begin to look away from Jesus for validation, assurance, and security. Paul's point is clear. Even the most righteous person according to God's law or the most righteous person in the appearance of people can never achieve actual righteousness before God. Your grasping for status for validation is actually a grasping for the very condemnation that you're trying to escape. And your achievement can't save you either. This is, this is reinforced by Paul as he moves from unpacking his resume of Jewish privilege to his resume of Jewish pedigree. See, Paul cho- chose a religious lifestyle. He didn't just live as a Jew. He lived as a religious Jew, right? And while being religious is seen kind of in our world as some sort of unthinkable, repulsive bigotry in the eyes of pop culture, this was a noble pursuit in Paul's life and in his culture and in society. So he describes himself in terms of the vigor of his religious commitment. And it shows us that there is no achievement that we can have to gain the righteousness that God requires. No amount of striving can cause you to ascend the mountain of Sinai, guys. You can't be in the presence of God. And I hope you feel the weight of that in the text this morning. There is no measure of cultural validation that will give you approval in the eyes of God. No amount of work can gain you access to God. There's nothing you can do in your own power to be approved by God. The prophet Jeremiah rightly diagnosed the problem in Israel in Jeremiah 17 when he says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But then he says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And he quotes Psalm 1. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither. It always bears fruit. There's a difference between the man who trusts in himself and the man who trusts in the Lord. Do not trust in your own strength. Trust in the benevolent God who wants to lift you up and rescue you from the madness caused by your own striving. Or as Jesus says it, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Or again, come to me and drink and you will never thirst again. Or again, come to me and any who comes to me, 
I'll never cast them out. I'll never cast them out. So if any of our efforts simply expose our unrighteousness, where do we go from here? This gets me to my second point, that any attempt in our own strength, while that might leave us condemned, according to Paul, the only place we can go is Christ. It's the only place we can go. But whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Do you feel the weight of that? Paul just showed you how awesome he is, like actually awesome he is. He said, whatever, thing, whatever I stood to gain as a result of these things, I now count as a loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Any asset that Paul would have formerly thought gave him the ability to sit at the table of God was now seen as a liability getting in the way of Christ. It had no value in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And Paul gets personal here, calling Jesus, my Lord. Right? This isn't some like abstract truth or thing that happened back there that doesn't bear any relevance for how we live today. Jesus is Paul's Lord. He's my Lord. This, this actively informs how Paul lives his life each and every day. So going back to one of the first things I said, like we all want to be righteous. We might not say it that way because today often those aspirations for righteousness come before the eyes of men. We want validation from people. In fact, many of us need validation from people. We need people to like us. We need people to love us and we don't take into account the gaze of God. You've got to stop trying to find your confidence in the opinions of others. You're going to leave yourself exhausted, fighting for an approval that you don't actually need. Brother or sister in Christ, you don't need them to like you. Christ likes you. You don't need them to approve you. Christ already declared that you're approved. You don't need them to promote you or notice all of the good things you did because just like we see when Jesus is teaching about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, your father sees you. He knows what you need. He knows what you're doing. You don't need them to need you because you're not God and they don't need you. They need him. They need him. You need to look to Christ in all his glory and see him as infinitely worthy. So much so that the glory of Christ should eclipse all of other attempts at the approval of man. You know whose approval you need? You need God's approval. You see, one of the beauty, beautiful things of the Bible is the Bible exposes our need for God and then shows that we can't, we can't get there, right? This is Paul's point in Romans 3. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Then he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul didn't just lay down his former resume. He didn't just count all of these things as a loss. Paul's life wasn't just a a life of sacrifice. 
Paul sought to gain Christ. He laid these things aside because he actually had something of better value to gain. He laid down his own attempts to justify himself before God and looked to Jesus because of Christ. Paul could lay these things down. The beauty of the gospel is found when you realize you bring absolutely nothing to the table. The beauty of the gospel is found when you realize you actually are not worthy. The beauty of the gospel is found when you realize that the only thing you bring to the table in the cosmic work of redemption is the sin that made you in need of redemption. It's all you bring to the table is your sin. But look at the shift in verse 7 and 8. Paul says that back then, past tense, Every individual asset that he listed in his past, he counted as a loss. But then presently now, he escalates it. He says, now I count everything a loss. So it's not just that stuff back there. It's not just my my pedigree, right? It's not just my prestige as a Jew. I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. If you want to know what true freedom is, look no further than verses 7 and 8. Paul's joy leads him to hold on to nothing in this life. Everything is worth giving up for the sake of Jesus. He gives up his societal pedigree. He gives up his promising future of Jewish affluence. He gives up a universal approval of the teachers that formed and shaped him. Paul gives up the material wealth that he could have had as a prestigious Pharisee, saying in chapter 4 of Philippians that he learns the secret of being content in all things, whether in plenty or in want, because he has Christ. Paul can face the suffering of being locked up with great joy, writing the Philippians from a prison cell because of Christ. All the loss, all the loss is worth it in the eyes of Paul. In fact, what he stands to gain because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ makes Paul's sacrifice actually look small. Do you see that? His sacrifice is actually an expression of putting down something way less valuable to take up something infinitely more. It would be like me kicking aside the bootleg Ford Taurus I used to drive when I was a teenager and like driving a Lambo. It's infinitely more valuable. What he stands to gain in Christ is infinitely more valuable. Do you actually think this way about Jesus? Like Paul was able to suffer without complaining because he had Christ and we can't even sit in traffic without complaining. Wondering why God would not move heaven and earth in this dumb car in front of us so that I can get to work on time. Right? God and his kingdom are far greater in the eyes of Paul and it led for him to have an appropriate perspective on the things of this world. He's willing to give it all up. In fact, earlier in Philippians, Paul would say, man, it would be better if I just like died right now and went to be with Christ. But I'm gonna remain with you guys because that means fruitful labor for me in the kingdom. So Paul, what did he say? He said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right, Because if I die, I'm with Jesus. I'm with my Savior. He's there. But to live is Christ, meaning if I'm going to live, I'm going to give my life to this. Paul has already laid out in the book of Philippians a glorious picture of the gospel. Listen to this. Speaking of Jesus, listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form, and as you do, think about the text we just read in chapter 3. I want to show you something significant. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's speaking of Jesus. But he emptied himself, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is one of the most beautiful, condensed pictures of the gospel that we have in the entire New Testament. But listen to how Paul compares himself to Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus didn't leverage his glorified status as the son for his own advantage. Instead, he used his glorious status to serve others. Paul forsook his status as a prestigious and dang good Jewish teacher. Christ gave his life in service to the Father. Paul gave his life in service to the gospel. Christ humbled himself to the point of death. Paul thought Christ worthy to suffer for. Christ, though through suffering, ascended to the right hand of God, waiting for all of his enemies to be put under his feet. And Paul suffered the loss of all things. Why? So that he would be found in Christ sharing in his suffering so that he might know the power of the resurrection and be exalted himself as he too rises from the grave at the last day when Christ returns. Paul's willingness to forsake this world for Christ is simply a living parable of the great gospel of grace that redeemed Paul in the first place. It shows how the gospel is actually lived in the lives of God's people. And this gets me to my last point, and I'll stay here very quickly. After forsaking all attempts at righteousness himself before men or God, after seeing Christ alone as our righteousness, our passage this morning shows us something beautiful. That in Christ, we're free to hope again. We are free to hope again. Have you ever suffered before? Maybe you suffered because we just live in a fallen world, you know, like disease, despair. Maybe you've suffered as a Christian Maybe you've lost friends for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you've lost family for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you've lost jobs, or maybe you forsook a promising future for the sake of Christ. If Christ hasn't raised from the dead, that would be a tragedy. Without Christ, any suffering, whether it's related to your Christian faith or not, is is a miserable and hopeless tragedy. The only purpose for pain apart from Christ is to drive you into further despair, right? Our, our painful circumstances, if the gospel is just utter, utter foolishness, the pain of our circumstances in our lives has no purpose but to point us to the terror of our limited existence. But with Christ, with the promise of the resurrection, with the guaranteed hope that all that is wrong with the world will be made right when Christ returns. All of our suffering, all of our pain, it leads and it points us to glory. Do you see that as Paul ends this? He says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, verse 10. Share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul saw sharing in the sufferings of Christ as totally worth it comparing to the glory that's coming. Or take Peter's word for it, who says, Beloved, I do not, do not be surprised. I love, I love Peter, such a pastor. He's like, hey guys, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The sufferings we experience in this life give us a longing for glory. 
But there's a word of caution with this. After spending an extensive amount of time doing missions in Mogadishu, Somalia, Nick Ripken traveled the world talking to persecuted Christians about their suffering in order to gain a better perspective of how to serve those who are suffering for Christ. In his book, The Insanity of God, he, requires a, 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 he recalls a conversation that he had with a prisoner under persecution named Stoyan. As he recalls the conversation, Stoyan says this, I thank God and I take great joy in knowing that I was suffering in prison in my country so that you, Nick, could be free to share Jesus in Kentucky. Those words, Nick writes, pierced my soul. I looked Stoyan straight in the eyes. Oh no, I protested. No, you are not going to do that. You are not going to put that on me. That debt is so large, I could never repay you. Stoyan stared right back at me and said, Son, that's the debt of the cross. He leaned forward and poked me in the chest with his finger and continued, Don't you steal my joy. I took great joy that I was suffering in my country so that you could be free to witness in your country. Then he raised his voice in a prophetic-like challenge that I knew would live with me forever. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. Friends, that is a word for us today. Don't you ever give up in freedom what we would have never given up in persecution. That is our witness to the power of the resurrection. You want to bear witness to the power of the resurrection? Rejoice in suffering and be ready when the trial comes that you would stand flat-footed on the gospel and not move. The power of the resurrection gives us courage to not give up. It gives us hope. And the guarantee of the coming glory is a truth that can lead to either terror or a glorious joy. C.S. Lewis says it well. He says, all of your life in untainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond your grasp. And the day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you've attained it or else that it was within your reach and you lost it forever. Look, Christ has come. His death and resurrection has been held out for us to take. Jesus rescues sinners and he stands willing to cleanse any sinner who would simply look at him. We can either see our need for the righteousness of God now and receive it as a gift from his hands. Or we will see our need for righteousness when it's too late and Christ has returned to judge the living and the dead. When the very patience of God runs dry and the final sinner repents to turn to God right before Jesus comes. Christ is the one who makes you righteous, friends. Your confidence in him should lead you to rejoice. He's given you a forgiveness more far-reaching than you could ever imagine. And he has lifted you to a righteous position of status that you could never attain. Rejoice, as Paul started this passage. Rejoice. Rejoice with great joy. Rejoice because though you brought absolutely nothing to the table, Christ rescued you from the darkness of your sin and gave you new life. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your goodness to us. That though we don't deserve it, you've rescued us from the domain of darkness and you've transferred us into the kingdom of the son you love. That in you, we have a status we can never attain 
and no amount of working on our end could have attained it. And so we thank you for Jesus who said it is finished. We thank you for Jesus that reminds us of the rescue that's been given to us. We thank you for Jesus who calls us to a better life. God, may we testify to the goodness of Christ with hope. Give us courage to stand in these times, we pray, with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the one who sits at your right hand. Amen.